Hello, welcome to a bonus episode of the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest for this episode is historian and writer Ted Widmer, who joins me to discuss his fabulous New Yorker piece on the life of Stuart Sutcliffe. Ted tells us about the time that he spent with Stuart's sister, Pauline, what life was like for Stuart as a Beatle, and how the shadow of Stuart's death hung over the Beatles throughout their career. Ted Widmer, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? I'm good, Joe. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. We are here today to talk about your marvellous piece on Stuart Sutcliffe, as published in The New Yorker. As I was just saying to you before we started, a really outstanding piece of Beatle writing. Um, So thank you, first of all, for writing it and for joining us. An obvious first question, what attracted you to write about Stuart? It's a good question. Um, I guess I should begin by saying I'm a historian. I teach history. I've been reading history my whole life, really. I grew up going to local historical sites. So even within the story of the Beatles, I've always been drawn to the beginning and the question of how they formed, and not just how they met each other. We, we know a fair amount about that, but how, how the magic happened and how the creativity, um, how, how they bounced ideas off of each other. And so I've, I've always been looking at photographs of the very early Beatles since really before I knew anything. And in some of the earliest, 60, 61, 62, there's this unusual presence in, in the back of the photograph. And he's making himself unusual often by wearing sunglasses or maybe looking in a different direction from the others. And I just was curious about him. I think I've known about him for 30 or 40 years, but but didn't know in detail about him. And then when I started reading Mark Lewison's Tune In, I, I just paid careful attention to Stuart. So the kind of heart of the piece and something which is of great interest in particular to us, us Beatle fans is your contact and relationship maybe even with Stuart's sister, Pauline. She's obviously a, a figure that she has written a book herself some some years ago now. How did you come to get in contact with with Pauline? Where was she? What was it like when you met her? Well, and I, I should have begun by saying that without meeting her, I'm sure I would not have written the piece. It was the personal contact that opened up the story for me. But the way it happened, I can't really take very much credit a university friend who's actually from Cardiff, Wales, although he came to the U.S. for university. He and I have known each other since we were 17 years old, and he somehow met Pauline or or he met people who knew Pauline. They all live on Long Island, and he knew of my long-term interest in the Beatles, and I think he even remembered that I used to talk about Stuart Sutcliffe I didn't know very much, but I kept pointing to this interesting guy in the in the margins of the photographs. And so my friend brought me to Pauline's house about three years ago. We had a, a magnificent day. We, t- we sat in her room, which had a skylight and a lot of light and all these incredible paintings. I mean, you really felt like Stuart was in the room. And we just talked and talked. And I told her about my early interest in the Beatles. Then I went back a few times. This is 2019. And she let me go into her basement where there were a lot of 
paper records relating to Stuart's life, um, really remarkable artifacts, old school notebooks, little drawings he did in geography classes of the way the world looked, which I found quite telling because I think a part of this story is not just the incredible music we all love, a desire to get out of black and white Britain and Liverpool specifically, and to see the world which began with Europe. I mean, that's that was the most realistic place you could get to. But you, and you do have a sense of color coming into the story when they, they start to get to, to Hamburg um, and then to Paris. Being a paper-based historian, I loved the basement. The basement was so exciting. I almost felt like I was walking down the steps into the cavern, except it was just her basement and it was old notebooks, but they were filled with life. His letters back to the family, to her and, and to her sister and mother about what life was like in Hamburg and uh, drawings he was making. He did some uh, primitive sketches of the stage attire the Beatles ought to be wearing and passport was down there. And then a lot of photographs, a lot, a lot of either original or in many cases copies. I really felt like I was going almost in a kind of walking through a door into another dimension that I was closer to Hamburg 1960 than I had ever been. And that's when I began to think about the New Yorker piece. I'd done a few, not very many, but a few pieces for the New Yorker about four or five years ago. And I pitched the idea of this story and they said, yes, but then all of these things happened, COVID hit. And I had also been working on a history book about Abraham Lincoln. That took a lot of my bandwidth. I just had to stop and think about not only the the finishing of the Lincoln book, but then the, the release of it. And so basically all of that Stuart Sutcliffe thinking went on the back burner for at least a year. And then I went back and, you know, I'm not sorry I had that year to pause. The New Yorker is, is, I mean, this is either a good or a bad thing. It's very slow. You, you submit something and a few months go back before they even respond. And then you take a little time to respond back. And it was probably almost a year from the moment I submitted the piece to when it actually appeared. So the entire time of Stuart Sutcliffe's participation in the Beatles is shorter than the amount of time it took me to think about this piece and, and produce it. But I've had a very nice response from friends and, and strangers, and I'm a big fan of your podcast, so I'm delighted to share any thoughts with, with you and your audience. When you were with Pauline, did you get the sense that she enjoyed talking about Stuart? Obviously, it's a long time ago since since she lost him. Was there a sense that she was not haunted, but that sometimes it would be difficult for her to talk about him? I think there was some pain. Um, she still missed him. That was clear. But there was a lot of joy also. And I mean, her face just literally lit up when she would say his name. And she lived in a kind of bath of his artwork. I was surrounding her on all sides of every room in this, in this very well illuminated house with a skylight. And she obviously was still communing with her brother 
And I think that brought her happiness. So I, I don't want to say there wasn't pain. There was a tremendous sense of his undeveloped genius. And I, I mean, I think she would appreciate my using that word. And I, I really came to feel that he was a genius. Um, I am not an art critic, but the paintings are incredibly colorful and interesting and, and alive. And you can see a lot of them on, online in various places, but there was something more than just being a painter. There was that mm. he was wise beyond his years. He, he didn't have very many years, um, but he was a profound thinker, utterly devoted to creativity, to his own and, and to that of his friends. But reading a lot, that struck me down in the basement. There were copies of his old books and there were you know, pretty heavy books Sartre, Dostoevsky, Kierkegaard. I, I mentioned Kierkegaard in, in the piece. He's more than a painter and he's more than a, a musician and he's more than a beetle. He was a real creative force unto himself. So I felt like he was in the room in a very good way. And I know Pauline felt that too. And I, I think it made her more happy than, than sad. Good. Um, so Stuart's main friendship as most listeners will, will know amongst the Beatles was of course with with John Lennon what do you think was the basis for that that very strong intense friendship that John and Stuart had it's a really good question it's a really important question because you know if I had to say my piece in a sentence or two it's that Stuart is much more interesting than a handsome guy with sunglasses in a photograph and that there was something as remarkable in the Sutcliffe-Lennon friendship as there later was in the Lennon-McCartney relationship, which is, you know, one of the great creative partnerships of all time. But there's something very important and different in the Sutcliffe-Lennon friendship. And they apparently loved each other from the moment they, they met. Stuart is going to the Liverpool Art Institute a year earlier, and he was always a star. Everyone recognized him, his fellow students and the faculty just understood he is the great painter of, of this art school. With Lenin, it's the opposite. He's hanging on by his fingernails, not a great artist, and he's ultimately reduced, I believe his major was lettering, which is funny, and shows that he really wasn't succeeding in impressing his faculty with big works of art, paintings or sculptures or anything he would, I mean, a lot of art school back then, the idea was to get you into a good paying job, illustration for ad agencies, that kind of thing. And I'm not sure he was even going to make that. He just was at the bottom of the, the rung with lettering, inking in letters and yet he did have these other skills that Stuart recognized that later came out to a wider audience, but that he, he was making these hilarious homemade newsletters in his teenage years, the Daily Howl, which are brilliant. They're filled with hilarious writing. So vivid are the scenes that he might have found his way into what is now a very good profession, writing comedy for television. I mean, he could have been a, you know, in a few more decades when there were more comedies on television, that might've been his 
his profession. But um, they obviously were doing a lot of wordplay between the two of them. And I grew very interested in descriptions of their friendship uh, since Cynthia Lennon's two memoirs, A Twist of Lennon and, and John, were really insightful, I, I thought, about how they were. And she said they were very different. Stuart was quiet. John was loud. Stuart was a very focused, patient painter. And John was more slapdash. But opposites attract. And they, they loved each other. And they talked about everything under the sun. Stuart actually was a fan of rock and roll. He loved Elvis. There is a painting that I've never seen in the flesh. It's been sold. But you can see it online. It's called Elvis Presley, and it's a very interesting painter by Stuart Sutcliffe. Cynthia describes Stuart helping John with his painting, with, with thinking about a painting. And I, I, I found this important that he would, you know, you don't just slap paint onto the canvas. You, you think about what you're trying to do. And you think about each section of the canvas. And with abstract expressionism, which Stuart is, beginning to get into, he, he did a lot of different kinds of painting, but you want the painting to feel somewhat three-dimensional. I mean, it's basically two-dimensional. You've got a little paint on a piece of, of canvas, but um, you're trying to help the viewer go into worlds that you're creating inside the painting. And I think they talked in those terms, and I believe that John began to or he, he remembers those conversations when he starts to write the songs that also take you into a world that are kind of three-dimensional in another mm -hmm. way. The songs like that, they don't really come from John Lennon until Stewart has already died. So I am speculating, but based on the way Cynthia talked about their conversations, I just think he was trying to bring the same quality to a song that Stewart was to a painting. And I'm thinking specifically of In My Life, which isn't even 1964, it's 1965, but it really takes you into a world. It's not about holding someone's hand anymore. It's about life. And it even mentions friends who are no longer living. And according to Pete Shotton, that is Stuart, that John is specifically referring to Stuart in that line, in that song. And I think it's also remembering these two very young people talking about what's the difference between ordinary art and something better. And, and just having the seed of that thought was pretty healthy for John Lennon at the beginning of the 1960s. How do you think Stuart fitted in with the with John's fellow Beatles, with Paul and with, with George? There, I mean, there's some obviously as you said, the great other great friendship of John's life was, of course, Mr. McCartney. There's some talk of the a bit of tension maybe between Paul and Stu. How do you think George and, and Paul reacted to being with Stuart? Another great question and a hard question. There is evidence on all sides of the ledger in, in this one. I mean, first of all, George, there are no particular problems there are some funny lines in which he talks about how Stuart wasn't the most gifted musician when he came in. He sells a painting and he gets enough money to buy a bass. John is strongly pressuring him to, to buy a bass. And 
It's literally the sale of a painting that gives him the financial wherewithal to buy that, that first bass. George is funny because he said, it's true he wasn't a natural musician, but it didn't really matter because he looked so good. Plus we never had any gigs anyway. So it's an important point that there were so few gigs that the critique of not being a very good musician is kind of irrelevant. And in the piece, I argue that actually Stuart really did a lot to get this slow moving enterprise off, off the ground, his social skills and his charm and his painting helped them to get more gigs than they, they would have had otherwise. And then with Paul, that, that is a really important question. And they are in quotes from Astrid and Klaus uh, in, in other places. I think Paul has admitted it. He said he was really jealous. He, the, an interesting quote, I think, in the anthology is that we were all peeved because Stuart pulled Astrid. They all liked Astrid and Stuart pulled her. If you go back to that time in their ages, everyone knows if you're 17 or 18 that the people who are 19 and 20 look down on you. You know, it's just human nature. And John and Stuart were, um, when they go off to Hamburg, well, well, first of all, in the spring of 1960, they are living together. They're in the Art Institute together. John and Stuart are together all day in art school. And then all, it sounds like the kink song, all day and all of the night. And they're living in this wonderful garret with canvases leaning up against the wall and guitars and bottles of Chianti and just all kinds of you know, books and, and people drifting in and out. Women are living in there as well. It's very exciting. And Paul and George have to go home every night and get tucked into bed. So they're really the junior partners in this not very successful enterprise. And then they, they go to Hamburg. And I tried to explain in the piece that Alan Williams comes to the Beatles because of Stuart Sutcliffe. He's not interested in Lennon, McCartney, or Harrison. It's it's his friendship with Stuart. And when they get in the bus to go to Hamburg, uh, it's clear there are two older Beatles and, and then these two younger ones and then a, a complete newcomer in, in, in Pete Best. And then when they get to the, the terrible rooms that they're going to sleep in, Bambikino, John and Stuart get one room and, and Paul gets the bad room. And so to all of their credit, they had a good ending. Stuart, whether it was because of the pressures that, I mean, so, so famously there's a fight near the end of Stuart's time in the Beatles in the spring of 1961, Paul is assaulting Astrid. And I don't know what the words were. And Stuart dropped his base and, and attacked Paul. And they rolled around on the stage for a while fighting each other. And Paul later said with amazement that Stuart was a little guy and he, he couldn't dominate him. I mean, neither dominated the other. It was just sort of a, a draw and all the gangsters were laughing because it was just two people who neither whom seemed so tough, who were rolling around pummeling each other. At the end of that spring, Stuart decided to leave the Beatles and Cynthia had another good line. He was not the kind of person to fool himself. 
So whether that refers to an uncomfortable feeling within the band or just how deeply in love he already was with Astrid, or he felt that his art was as important to him as the making of rock and roll was to the others. He just knew that about himself. I think that's what Cynthia meant, that he was not the kind of person to fool himself. So for all these reasons, he has found the love of his life. He knows he wants to be a painter. He's had a good run in the Beatles, but he can't have it all. He's got to make a decision. So he leaves the band voluntarily. I think until Paul quits the Beatles, he's the the first and only person to, to quit the Beatles. He leaves on a, on a good note. They, he goes into that recording session in Hamburg when they back Tony Sheridan. And I found that quite moving, that he's in the room, but not playing his bass. That seemed to me like a very beautiful transitional moment as he's going away from them, but he's still there when they're doing their first recordings. Absolutely. You mentioned Astrid there, and you mentioned that they were all trying to, trying to pull her, um, but Stuart quite obviously succeeded tell us a little bit about about their relationship in the piece you say that she didn't speak English and he didn't speak German tell us a little bit about how that that relationship kind of came together and what it meant to the the both of them well it was Klaus who made it happen and you know interestingly he lost in the bargain he he was Astrid's boyfriend there's a sign at the very beginning of this story that he will not be for very much longer because he had a fight with her And he went for a long walk around the harbor and heard some music coming out of a a club, the Grosse Freiheit, and went in. And that's the the first time he sees the Beatles. Actually, he walked in and he had a marvelous description. And one of the the other great things for me with this piece, not just meeting Pauline and seeing all the, the documents, but I was able to call Klaus in Germany a couple times and he was very generous with his time. And he told me about this night and he's just nursing a broken heart or, or mad at his girlfriend or whatever. He's sitting there alone. He had never been to a nightclub. The first Beatle to come out was Stuart. And that's another telling detail that he just came right out on the stage. And Klaus said he looked a little bit like James Dean. And then the others came out. So he's not this retiring guy turning his back to the audience. He's charging right out onto the stage and they go right into it. And the way Klaus described it, it was like a a thunderbolt. You know, he'd never seen any form of culture that was as visceral as the live rock and roll of of the Beatles. I I wish we knew what song it was. And so he went back and told close friend Jürgen Vollmer brought them back the next night and they had the same feeling. They had never seen rock and roll either. And then they start coming every single night and they're not like, you know, you're supposed to just drink a lot and get in fights and that's the Hamburg experience, but they're, they're like, it's like a Parisian cafe. They're sitting at a little table together, clapping their hands after each number. They're different. And the attraction was, Mutual and and another great story. Klaus said he went up to John Lennon, and he wanted to sh- sort of sweetly show him some drawings he had made. He'd just done, done a drawing of a forty-five RPM single, 
and he'd drawn a figure who looked kind of like a beetle, uh, like very thin pants, winkle pickers on, which by the way, we don't know that word in the US, but I know it because I became friends with Pauline. He started to show it to, to John and John just pointed to Stuart and said, show it to him. He's the arty one, which is kind of funny because John also was in art school, but he was in, I think, you know, rock and roll mode. He wasn't an art student at that moment. So uh, Klaus walked over to Stuart and showed him his drawings. And he said it was like a house on fire. They started talking about all their favorite painters. And I think Klaus said Modigliani who, you know, is so far from the world of seamy Hamburg rock and roll clubs or really of Liverpool clubs either. It's this other thing. And they just became close immediately. And not too many weeks after that, Astrid proposed the photography session. And it was actually her first photo session. Their first photo session was her first photo session. And they all somehow instinctively knew exactly what to do. So they go to the abandoned fairgrounds in, in Hamburg. And in all of those photographs, they all look great. Paul and John are looking right into the camera like we know we have something special. They're, they're not typical teenagers. Um, but then fascinatingly, Stuart's always in the background. And I liked that. In, I mean, this was my idea, but I, I was glad they did it. They showed these two parallel photographs, one of Paul, one of John, and in each one, Stuart is like 20 feet behind them in the same pose. And it is like a pose. It's almost like someone modeling for an art class or a movie still. It's a bit like the movie Blow Up with something very interesting happening in the background. Not So they're all bouncing creativity off each other. And then what was between Stuart and Astrid was eventually irresistible. And you, you even feel it on that day that he's looking at her saying, don't look at them, look at, look at me. And that, that's what happened. The amazing thing about those pictures that, that she took, and this also applies, I think, to Mike McCartney's pictures, those, those pre-fame pictures. You look at those pictures of them on the truck and as you say, of, of, of John and Paul, these are people that are absolutely nowhere near famous. Right. They are so, they're they are almost, they're not even that one. And in Liverpool at this point, it's not even like they would be recognised walking down Matthew Street or somewhere. And obviously we look at them now as the most famous people in the, in the world. But, right. But something about the quality of the way, like you say, the way they look at the camera, they look like they're completely convinced that these pictures will be seen for the next hundred years. It's incredible, isn't it? Exactly. It, it's uncanny, but that's exactly right. Moving on through Stuart's time, you mention a, a nice chunk of, of the piece about Stuart's friendship with a fellow artist, Eduardo Paolozzi. Tell us a little bit about this friendship and how this influenced Stuart's work. Well, that to me was a wonderful part of my research. I, I actually did much more research than I was able to put into the piece. And I am the kind of person who goes into rabbit holes of pretty easily, you know, just from Wikipedia and suddenly I'm off and it's days later and I haven't eaten anything. <laughs> Paolozzi, by the way, there's a, um, a Desert Island Discs with him that you can find on the BBC archive. That's 
quite interesting. It's 30 years, 30 or 40 years old, but, um, but interesting. So he is different. He's older and he's um, a sculptor and painter and a very innovative thinker about, about art, you know, in many ways, much more than Stuart or John at that moment, even though he's older. Paolazzi's from a family of Italian immigrants to Scotland born in the same place as Stuart in Edinburgh. And he uh, has a many early phases. He's, he's sort of obsessed by aircraft as a young man and propellers and throughout his life. And I, I think this is a legacy of, of the second world war, which I was also very interested in, in the research that didn't really make it into the piece, but how close everyone in this story is, whether in Liverpool or Hamburg, to the terrible bombing of both cities. Most Americans don't know the story. They are vaguely aware of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but they don't know about the terrible civilian deaths caused by uh, American bombers, and I, I assume British also in, in 1943 in, in Hamburg. But um, anyway, Pelotzi's obsessed by big metal objects like propellers on airplanes. And he goes to Paris in the aftermath of the war. He's a young man and he meets some of the older Dada artists. So the people who were cutting edge around World War I, they're still alive in Paris and he gets to know them. And he does a work of art. It's kind of a collage that shows I don't want to get the title wrong and I'm, I'm forgetting it, but it's in, the, it's in my piece and I'm sorry, I've already forgotten the name of it, but um, it's a collage that shows a sort of comic book background and there's a gun and the word pop is coming out of the gun. And many art critics consider that the birth of pop art. People, other people are sometimes given credit like Warhol or Lichtenstein, I actually, as I looked at Lichtenstein, who did, did comic books and paintings, I thought he was entirely derivative of Paolazzi. The Paolazzi was way before him, and frankly, much more interesting. He does a lot of different kinds of art, and he um, sometimes he's in Britain, sometimes he's in France. Then he gets this job teaching in Hamburg in 61, 62, which is exactly when Stuart is, is leaving the Beatles. So by, by fall of 61, they have connected and Stuart enrolls in, in the Hamburg art school that Paolazzi's teaching in, and they love each other. And I tried to follow the story of what kind of art Stuart is making. And it's very interesting because he's branching out into some new media. And I've never seen any of the actual product, but Paolazzi partly from this fascination with war and with big metal objects, he's going into the scrapyards of Hamburg and find, you know, paying a little bit of money here and there for a piece of a tank, a piece of an airplane. And he loves these as sculptural objects. So fascinating. And Stuart's going in with him and writing enthusiastic letters back to his sisters in Liverpool about this incredible teacher who's taking him out of the, the classroom and out into real life. And it feels to me very connected to the story of the, the Beatles 
getting a taste of real life in the Hamburg clubs and going to the abandoned fairgrounds. It's not so different. So they're going to abandon shipyards and scrapyards where, where the big ships are, are broken up. He's also making movies. And there is a movie that I, I put a link in my piece, The History of Nothing. Fascinating, kind of weird sequence of nonsensical images, but really interesting. And Stuart was working on a movie also probably similar. What, what I would give to be able to see Stuart Sutcliffe's movie at the end of his life, but sad, sadly, no one has ever uh, produced it. We don't know where it is. As you say, that's an, uh, that's an incredible missing piece, maybe, of the puzzle. Just to draw toward a, a conclusion, Ted, Stuart's early and sad death is well known to almost, I would imagine, all listeners to the podcast. What kind of impact do you think Stuart had over John and over the, the Beatles as their career progressed? Well, it was just a terrible loss. I think all of them felt his loss. Astrid, a few weeks after his death, went to visit John in Hamburg and he taped everything he ever had from Stuart, every letter that he'd ever received, every postcard, every work of art, all around the room that he was living in. So he was in a very deep grief. And I, I, so the, the consequence of that, I, I think one of the reasons we love the Beatles so much, we all love them for different reasons. And often as young people listening, we're not even fully conscious of all of the reasons, but we sense that they are serious as well as lighthearted they're very gifted wordsmiths. And I, you know, I, I do think the, the virtuosity of the language, which you know Paul should get credit for as well as John, but I think Stuart was part of this literary ambition to use excellent words. Rock and roll can be more complicated than a Jerry Lee Lewis or Elvis. Well, actually they have good words too. So I don't, I don't want to put them down, but there, there was a higher level that was available that the Beatles found. Um, but then even more, I have this sort of philosophical feeling and I'm no expert on philosophy, but that Stuart is reading Kierkegaard. He's interested in how we connect to the afterlife or to the soul or these big concepts that are out there. And then he goes and, and vanishes into the afterlife. And I think they really missed their friend and they felt that they were communing with him. And even Paul had this wonderful quote in the anthology that um, we all made a pact that if one of us were the first to go, he would try to rattle some pans so the rest of us would know he was, he was okay. It's a wonderful quote. And they were thinking about their, their friend in the afterlife. And then Death, it's in great literature, and it's in great film, and it's in great music, and there is a lot of death in, in the Beatles. It's all over the place once you start looking for it. I mean, Eleanor Rigby, Yesterday is about someone who's gone away. It's probably Paul's mother. Um, she said, she said, I know what it is to be dead. The dead friend in, in my life who is Stuart. And I just think there is a depth or even in George's quixotic search for something beyond life in Indian religion, all of that, I think, can be 
brought to the story of a brilliant young man who, who died. I mean, I can't say any, any of this with 100% certainty, but it just feels true to me. And then there are these telltale signs in um, Beatles, the, for sale, Beatles, Beatles for Sale, Beatles for sale. at the end of 64. It's a real sign that 64 is ending and 65 is just the way they look. They look mm. older mm. and they're wearing this black knit s- scarf that Astrid had so had knit for them during her period of mourning. So it's almost as if they're wearing mourning regalia for Stuart in that photograph mm. in Beatles for sale. And then Stuart is uh, on the cover of Sergeant Pepper. And uh, one fascinating discovery for me was uh, the, the rock and roll album cover, John Lennon's rock and roll. There are, these wispy figures in the foreground and it's Paul and Stuart walking. So John is still, you can see him. And then the others are, are ghostly. And I, I thought that too was telling that Stuart has not quite left the picture. He's still, he's still in the, in the background or the foreground in that case. It's interesting that you mention Beatles for sale because that album contains babies in black that's which right. many Very people, good. which is a, a great song and has got, is obviously a dark song. And many people feel that Astrid is the center of that song. Um, Such a good point. And, you know, I, um, I just was listening to No Reply recently, hmm. which is about a failed romance, but it's also about knocking at a door and no one is answering the door. Hmm. And it sort of could also be about a, a dead friend. Hmm. Absolutely. The other example, again, on the back of your piece, I probably was looking for this a little bit, but in the song, Yes, It Is, John and Paul and George say Scarlet were the clothes she wore and Stuart apparently painted with red many, many times. And and also my favourite songs, actually. Oh, fantastic song. Yeah. And would wear red quite often. So when you look for these, these little kind of, droplets in the songs right Stuart is is there um just to just to kind of sum up then what ifs are always a dangerous area to go in but us Beatle people must tread there now and then how do you feel had Stuart survived to to see the Beatles do you think he would have been involved in some way in an album cover or or a film or something that is what you said is my specific thought. I think, I mean, Klaus was involved. They, mm. they all sort of take over each other's identities. Klaus also becomes a bassist. It's like Klaus almost steps into Stuart's role. He mm. becomes John's bassist, Plastic Ono Band, and, and he, does a, he does the Revolver cover. But I think Stuart would have done some amazing covers. And um, I'm not sure if he would have contributed musically, maybe not. But it would have been fun to see him, like maybe some set design in help or just uh, that that Dada humor that's always pretty close to the surface in the Beatles, including Magical Mystery Tour, the uh, I Am a Walrus sequence. I could see Stuart helping with things like like that. I mean, it's not just Stuart. It's deeply in British humor, as, as you know better than I, and in the uh, the goons. But there was something Stuart was bringing that was his own that was extremely interesting. And everyone from that scene of the artists in Liverpool always just talked about what a lovely man he was and how, how funny and how eager to connect different ideas and 
reading all the stuff young people love, like Albert Camus and Sartre. And just, I, I think he would have been in the creative mix of the Beatles throughout, throughout the decade. Well, what a great place to end. Uh, so it, it really just leads me to say, Ted, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Joe. Really enjoyed it.